Good morning. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, thank you that in your word we have all that we need for life and godliness. Thank you that you have chosen to reveal to your church those things that you purpose for us and have revealed them through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have revealed all we need in the Holy Scriptures, and they are able to make us wise unto salvation. May we keep our eyes firmly fixed on you. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Village Green. It's great to be back up here, and uh, it's been a long time. Uh, this pandemic has stretched us, certainly as a congregation. Oops, just give me a minute here. Look at this, masks. Ugh. One thing we've grown to, to do is hate wearing these things, but it is a necessity. Um, there, get this on there. It certainly stretched us as a congregation, and I'm so proud of all of us for staying the course and weathering the storm. It's been nothing short of providential. And as, as John was saying this morning, it's time to start thinking of coming back. Um, or, well, I'm double vaccinated. Uh, we're taking all the necessary safety precautions to keep everybody here safe. And things are going to start opening up again in September. I'm going to start coming every Sunday now, um, as often as I can. Uh, yeah, I know there's been some anxiety with me in particular, uh, given the nature where I work. Um, and for a while there, it was pretty gloomy. Um, I was certainly around a lot of COVID cases. So it's good to be back, and it's good to be here with you once again. And uh, let's start thinking of, uh, of coming back and looking at normal again, whatever normal may it look like. Um, but, you know, if you can go to Walmart, you can start to think about coming back to church, right? <laughs> okay. Many years ago, I remember having a conversation at work with a good friend of mine, and he was upset that there was a lot of backbiting going on. You see, this person had recently been promoted to a position that I personally thought they'd be excellent at. Yet, there were a lot of grumblings and murmurings amongst the staff, and perhaps some of you have experienced something similar. You see, I knew they'd chosen the right person, and they were rewarded for hard work. This person, in my mind, deserved the position. But resentment was high for a while, as others who had been there longer felt they deserved the position. The problem was most of the others didn't put in the work, even though they had been there longer. You see, there's something to be said about merit, and we're going to touch on that a little bit this morning. And that story I just gave you, I'm sure you can think of lateral situations in your life where you've seen something like that happen. But we are in the Gospel of Luke, and I'm continuing our series on stories that move the heart. So I'd like to start by having you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, verse 11 to 27. So take out your phones, your tablets, or uh, whatever you're using, if you'd, you'd like to follow along. The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said, and because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. He said, a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, 
he called together ten of his servants and divided among them ten pounds of silver, saying, Invest this for me while I am gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want him to be our king. After he was crowned king, he returned and called his servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out that their, what their profits were. The first servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made ten times the original amount. Well done, the king explained. You are a good servant. You have been faithful with the little I entrusted to you, so you will be governor of ten cities as your reward. The next servant reported, and he said, Master, I hid your... He said, but the third servant... Whoops, skipped ahead here, my apologies. The next servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You will be governor over five cities. The third servant brought back only the original amount of money and said, Master, I hid your money and kept it safe. I was afraid because you are a hard man to deal with, taking what is yours and harvesting crops you didn't plant. You wicked servant, the king roared. Your own words condemn you. If you knew that I'm a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvests crops I didn't plant, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then, turning to the others standing nearby, the king ordered, Take the money from this servant and give it to the one who has ten pounds. But master, they said, he already has ten pounds. Yes, the king replied. And to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. And for the enemies of mine who didn't want me to be their king, bring them in and execute them right here in front of me. So looking into chapter 19, just to set the scene here. Zacchaeus was chief of the tax collectors and very, very rich. And he was living in Jericho. He had no doubt lived probably in a posh, exclusive section of the city. I'm sure you can think of many just in this city alone. And Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem via Jericho. And on the way, he's having this conversation. And when I was preparing this message, I blew the dust off a old Jewish study Bible I have, and I found that the name Zacchaeus is most likely a Hellenized version, meaning Greek, of the Hebrew name Zacchae. And some scholars believe that the name Zacchae in turn is a compressed version of the popular name Zechariah. But most scholars believe that the core of both these names comes from the verb, forgive me John, (laughs) Zacchae, meaning to be pure. And that name is interesting because he probably wasn't seen as very poor. He was a tax collector. He's like the top Revenue Canada agent. The Jewish Talmud even says that you can lie to a murderer, thief, and tax collector because they're all the same. These people were despised. They were even banned from synagogue worship. But Jesus didn't care. He went out of his way to find Zacchaeus and ask him to have him over 
for dinner. One of my little side hobbies is ancient Rome. I know quite a bit about the ancient Roman Empire. I read historical fiction set in ancient Rome. And I can tell you, these were a very heavily taxed people. It cost a lot of money to fund the Roman Empire. Uh, there were taxes for just about everything. There was a poll tax. You were taxed basically just for breathing Roman air. There was a soil tax. There was a fish tax for each fish that you caught. And I think if they could, they would have probably taxed you on every scale on the fish. Uh, you were charged by the carts that you pushed on Roman roads. So if you had a four-wheeled cart, that would cost you a lot of money, right? A lot of people would just say, well, I'm going to get a wheelbarrow, you know, because it's a lot cheaper than what you would have to pay in tax. And Zacchaeus was a tax collector. But as despised as Zacchaeus was, Jesus, he didn't care what the crowd thought. Right? Now, although Jesus loves everyone, Jesus talks in Matthew 18 about the order you need to talk to someone who has offended you. And he specifically cites tax collectors. One of the things he says is, number one, go alone. So in our situation, we would meet the person perhaps for a coffee or pay them a visit and discuss the problem. And if that doesn't work, number two, take someone with you, two or three witnesses. Share your concern for them. Don't judge or condemn them. Maybe pray for them. And if they still don't, and they're not willing to repent or change, take it to the church. Now, this is implied church leadership, not that you're to air the dirty laundry before the congregation. And by the way, this includes disguising the laundry as a prayer request, right? <laughs> we don't want to say, oh, I think we should pray for Jim because I saw him in the bar yesterday. No, 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 we don't, we don't do anything like that. Number four says, if he still doesn't repent, treat him like a pagan and a tax collector. In other words, if somebody really digs in their heels and is so stubborn that they won't repent or change, then regard them as a tax collector. But what's interesting is what Jesus is saying here is this guy needs saving like anyone else. This guy needs saving too. How many people do you think we would judge and put in that bill? There are people whom we ostracize and regard with disdain for a belief, a lifestyle choice, or a behavior. And for some of us, that's very difficult. But what Jesus is saying here is they need saving too. Jesus reached out to the most hated in that society, and that shocked people. And I believe he would do the same today. I believe Jesus would do things and share conversations with people that would shock us. Perhaps like many of you, I, I tend to hold conservative beliefs and values. I do. But I believe that Jesus would shock me today with some of the things that he might do. And that's what he did. He reached out to people that we wouldn't think of going near. He recognized that everyone needs to be saved. These collectors were essentially regarded as collaborators. Take a little bit of Rome, take a little bit for Rome, and a little bit for me. A little bit for Rome, a little bit for me. 
they lined their own pockets. The mafia calls this leakage, right? <laughs> they have distributors and so forth, and they don't expect to get all of it back because they know they're going to put a little in their own pocket. They were regarded as traitors. I guess a good analogy would be how we regarded people that were working for the Nazis in occupied countries during the war. But Jesus says, this man too is a son of Abraham. What we're seeing here is Jesus is pulling Zacchaeus into the circle of the saved. Not to reject him just because of what he does. How many of you remember the Sunday, school, the Sunday school song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he? Anybody remember that song? Oh, two, three, okay, I'm, four. I'm not alone here. Okay, that's good. Um, it's not very politically correct nowadays, but not much is. Um, so he's a wee little man, and he has to climb a tree to see Jesus. Anybody remember Fantasy Island? So just picture tattoo in a tree wearing a toga, okay? He wants to get a good view of Jesus. But the next part is absolutely divine because Jesus walks over to him and says, Zacchaeus, you need to come down. I need to go to your house today. This would have shocked Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus isn't going out of his way to speak to Jesus. He's not saying, you know, he doesn't want a selfie. He doesn't want to get in front. He's not going out of his way to speak to Jesus. Jesus comes to him. Zacchaeus is probably looking around thinking, what, what, me? Yes, you. And everybody in that crowd is probably grunting and groaning because he is going to the house of a sinner. They're probably saying, I can't believe this guy going to that loser's house, right? Everybody had strong opinions of these tax collectors. And yet Jesus is going out of his way. And he's going to have dinner with him. Yet this is the love of Christ. He wants all people to be saved. He doesn't discriminate based on political views, race, behaviors, or gender. Everyone. For God so loved the world. Jesus comes even to save this guy. At this point, Zacchaeus said he will pay back four times the amount. He goes over and above the legal requirement, which was double. Good fruits follow good relationship. You see, some people have it backwards. They do good things to be loved by God. But the flip of that is that when we love God, we want to do good things. Zacchaeus has come into this relationship and been saved, and now in his heart, he wants to do the right thing. To quote D.L. Moody, restitution is proof of a changed heart. By verse 11, People are beginning to get anxious, you see. He's, he's coming down and he's approaching Jerusalem. In verse 11 it says, While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. 
So he's coming down. They think, is this it? Is this the moment? Is he going to drive out the Romans? They wonder if the kingdom of God is coming now. And this is where a parable really takes off. And what's interesting about this story is you are in it, each and every one of you. Christ starts by saying, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. And just to give this perspective, a mina is worth about three months' wage. So the average Canadian family makes about $75,000 a year. That's a lot of money. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Now this is a parable. Jesus is telling a story to illustrate an answer to their question. He's referring to the subjects and citizens of the country that he is going to. And they don't want him to be king. Not his servants. The servants are back home. It's the subjects here. In verse 15, he was made king, however, and returned home. Then sent for the servants to whom he had given the money to find out what they had gained with it. So he's calling them back. He's like, okay, I gave you this money. What did you do with it? The first one comes and says, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. So remember, three months' wage, he's made that ten times what it was. Well done, my good servant, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man? taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you, everyone who has more, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king, and here it is, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Let's just break this down a little bit, because that's a very strong verse. Now the first point here is, the kingdom of God or Christ's coming will be delayed. He already knows he's going to the cross and will be crucified. What they want to know here is, when is the kingdom of God coming? Or rather, when is the Roman government going to be overthrown? We're tired of Rome. We're tired of heavy taxation. We want to be free. Is he coming now? This is what they're asking. But Jesus is pointing out here that the Roman Empire is going to be here for a little while. There's going to be kings 
There's going to be powers and nations. One day, I'm going to come again. See? You're starting to get the impression here that he's talking about himself. He's going away for a little while. He's going to become king, but he's trusting his servants with his possessions. He's trusting them and telling them to put to good what he has given them. Meanwhile, the citizens of this country that he's going to run are upset because, frankly, they just don't want this guy. You know, it's not like there was an election. They couldn't choose him. So what he's talking about here is many Jews didn't want him to be king. They didn't want this guy to be the Messiah. And he's saying that one day he's going to return. And what is he going to find amongst the faithfulness of his servants? The gist of this parable is, and if we could bring up the second bullet point, live a productive life using the gifts that he has given you while you wait for his return. That's pretty much what he's saying here. The one guy uses his mina in a certain way. The other guy in another way. But they're proportionally rewarded for their use of it. But then we get to this third servant who basically says, yeah, well, you're kind of a hard man. I mean, you're a little rough around the edges. You know, so I, I just hid mine. I kind of wanted to protect it. it. It wasn't really worth the risk. But in verse 23, he says, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you? You knew I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Now, where in our Bibles it says, you knew, did you? It'd be better translated in our vernacular, you thought. You thought I was a hard man? You thought I was a bad guy? You thought I was unfair and don't treat people right? Is, is, that, is that your perspective of me? If that's your perception, then you'll be judged for that. You're starting to, to get the gist of what's going on here. You see, I think it's dangerous to cherry-pick every little verse and try and interpret it by saying, well, this must mean this, and well, this must mean that. But I think the overall theme here is you need to be productive and look at the talents and abilities that God has given you. We need to look at our lives. We need to look at what God has given us. We have a responsibility to live a productive life using all of our God-given talents and abilities for His glory. We're not to squander it or think about it or waste it. We've all been given gifts and abilities. We all have the gift of salvation. What have you done with your gift? Does it sit on the shelf, still in the package? Do you feel God is asking you to share your gifts and talents? Do you hesitate? Do you feel you're too busy? What God asks you to do, he will give you the power to do. There's an old saying, where he guides, he provides. You see, God promises you success. I think in Ephesians, he says, you will be successful. God wants you to succeed at serving him. He doesn't want you to be a failure. Now, he's not promising to make you a success at what you want to do. Right? I mean, I, if I said I want to be an Olympic athlete, the Olympics are going on right now, right? And I believe God is going to make me a success in Olympic competition. Probably not. 
Probably not. And for any of you that saw me in any kind of sports, there's a reason I'm not on our, ba our baseball team, right? You know, if you saw me, you'd say, yeah, probably not. I'm not wired for that. But if you want to be a success in life, it's simple. Start doing what God made you to do, and you'll start to be a success at it. God doesn't guarantee your success at things you just think will be fun, right? All of us at one point want to be a hockey player or an astronaut, right? But God makes you a success at what he put you on earth to be and do. And if you're not succeeding, then you need to change course and get on the track that God has laid out for you. There's so many of us in this world that go down the wrong path. So, so many of us. And I mean, not even in Christian circles. There's, there's some wonderful road laborers that are probably wonderful poets and singers. You know, what would happen if you ignored your GPS and decided to do what felt nice, right? Think about it. You're supposed to be going to your destination, and instead, you veer off the road, and I'm going to follow the road that looks pretty. Instead of going to Toronto, people would end up in the Arctic. People would end up who knows where, in the ocean, right? Follow your path. You know, I look at all of us here at Village Green, and I'm so thankful for all the talented people that we have here at this church who share their gifts and their talents. You cannot imagine what God could do with your life if it was totally in his hands. Little old you. You cannot imagine because you were made by God to be used by him. So the Bible says. And I want to tell you from personal experience, there's no greater thrill than to be known you're being used by God. Nothing really comes close when you realize God is using you for his purpose to help someone else. When that happens, you're thinking, this is what I'm here for. This is right. This is good. And if you're not being used by God, what are you doing? It's a question. It's a legitimate question. It's a question you have to ask yourself. Are you wasting it? Sadly, many, many people never feel that thrill of being used by God, even though that's what they were made for. And some of you will say, well, how can God use me now? I'm too old. I'm in my 80s. I'm in my 90s. Listen, I worked in long-term care for years. Aging is inevitable, but it doesn't have to make us unfruitful and useless. The secret to living a productive life is not found in a pill or a drink or an exercise routine, but in heeding what the Lord says. None of us know how long we're going to live, myself included. But while we have breath, we should desire to be useful and fruitful for God. He is the one who ultimately determines the number of our days. We have a responsibility of doing what we can to live long and productive lives. And the Lord can still produce fruit within us, even in old age. The Bible says he's going to come again, and he will rule and reign over the earth. 
Now, it's not like this third servant that we talked about here who, who didn't really do anything. It's not like he's thrown into hell. The mina is simply taken away and given to someone else who's going to do something with it. So, yeah, if you've accepted Christ, then you're saved. But sadly, some of us are going to get to heaven naked. The judgment here comes in verse 27. There will be judgment for those who reject him. And that last reference here is to the people of the kingdom who are not his servants. The citizens of the kingdom who rejected the king will be judged. That is the truth. There will be judgment for people who reject Jesus. God desires all people to be saved. He wants us to be the couriers of that message. We need to be a part of that. And we need to share the good news and not worry what man thinks. One of the reasons we sometimes doubt that God could have a plan for our lives is because we compare ourselves with others who seem to have greater abilities, greater intellects, greater opportunities. This person can, you know, do this better than I could, right? We're at a dinner, oh, I wish I could cook like that, I'm a failure there, or I wish I could do this, I'm a failure there, right? John preaches better than I do, I'm a failure there. However, God is the one who gives life and determines what he will entrust to each one of us. God. We may not understand why some people have more benefits in life, while others have an abundance of suffering. But we know that all God's judgments are according to his good and perfect will. Our task is simply to be faithful and obedient in using the abilities, opportunities, and even the hardships that he's given us. Even if we haven't been living as the Lord desires, he is willing to pick us up right where we are and begin guiding us into his will if we will submit to him. This has always been his desire for those who are in Christ, that we may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, Colossians 1.9. And it's amazing what the Lord can do with a life that's fully surrendered to him. Although our past cannot be changed, when we come to him in repentance, he enables us to walk in his footsteps and follow his will as he lives his life in and through us. Even people who have hated God and rejected his son are invited to turn to him and find this new life. Saul of Tarsus, great example. He was a persecutor of Christians until the Lord appeared to him, blinded his eyes, and transformed him into his own apostle. No one is so evil that God cannot save him if he will turn to Christ in faith. I, I remember many stories when I worked in the nursing home years ago. People would say to me, if you knew what I did, you wouldn't be talking to me now. If you knew who I slept with, if you knew what I did during the war, you wouldn't be talking to me now. Yes, I would. Yes, I would. God desires all people to be saved, regardless of what they've done. One day, God is going to ask you what you have done with the mina that he gave you. What is your answer going to be? 
Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, thank you that you came to seek and to save lost sinners like us. And for the amazing love and grace that you have bestowed upon us. Thank you for forgiving us our sins, for bringing salvation into our hearts, and for making it your dwelling place. Lord, light our path and show us the direction that you want us to go. Let your Holy Spirit nudge us on the course that you have planned for us. Keep us humble in heart, meek in spirit, and submissive to your Holy Spirit. And may we be used to your greater glory in all we say and do today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.